Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Good evening. I'm Jeremy Scott. It's so good to be with you as it is each and every week. You know, usually our shows, they have a theme if you've been checking us out for any length of time. Tonight is no different. However, Nick Redfern, my guest tonight, he just knows so much about so many things. I couldn't in all sanity just choose one thing in which to talk with him about. So in an episode called uh, Strange World... We're going to discuss uh, his wealth of research on conspiracies and cover-ups and assassinations, UFOs and ETs. And, of course, you probably have a book from Nick Redfern sitting on your bookshelf, as do I. So I want to welcome Nick to the program. He's a full-time author and journalist specializing in a wide range of unsolved mysteries, including Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, UFO sightings, government conspiracies, alien abductions, and paranormal phenomena, of course. Having traveled extensively, he has investigated reports of lake monsters in Scotland, vampires in Puerto Rico, werewolves in England, aliens in Mexico, and sea serpents in the United States. Nick has over 40 books about UFOs, lake monsters, zombies, and Hollywood scandal, along with hundreds of articles and publications and online. He has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified files on UFOs from the Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense from the Second World War. His website is nickredfern14.blogspot.com, and it's so good to have Nick Redfern back into the paranormal. Hey, man, how's it going? It's been uh, crazy. <laughs> What's it been like for you? Has it been, has yeah, it been crazy of. nuts? Yeah, kind of. Um, a couple of times in, over the last week, there's been um, issues with uh, connections, and then the, one of the towers uh, where I live went out, and um, <laughs> it's been kind of one of those things, and, um, but hopefully it'll be back to normal. 100 <laughs> percent um hopefully within the next day or two so. <laughs> well we're so glad that, that you could one of those join things. us tonight 
Yeah, I was hoping, uh, you know, it wasn't going to cause any problems and it doesn't sound like it has. Um, but it's just one of those situations that uh, is kind of uh, out of your hands once it starts to kick in. So. <laughs> You, you certainly have kept up uh, writing books uh, because every time I look, there's one or two new titles on your Amazon page, and I have to you know get my orders in because I just love reading through your your books. I want to talk to you uh, in the audience about one of your your latest books uh, and the topics that you write about in the Martians: Evidence of Life on the Red Planet. It's an in-depth study of of the theory that Mars was once a world that had life, right, Nick? Yeah, and I think when you look at the whole issue of Mars and all the controversies surrounding it, um, there's no doubt if when you look at all the data that we have in hand, um, for my uh, view at least, Mars is not a, a dead world and hasn't been for a long, long time. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, you know, there are sort of huge cities sprawling across the landscape. You know, I don't mean anything like that. But what I'm talking about are, if you like, the last kind of vestiges of, of an ancient civilization, but where we have some degree of sort of residue left behind, you know, which may have uh, sort of be um, evidence suggesting that there was a civilization maybe not just thousands of years ago, but tens of thousands of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago. So in other words, I'm not talking about, you know, we can just sort of point your telescope somewhere and happen, just happen to see something that's um, really cool. It's not, it's not like that, you know, but I think there is enough data uh, in hand to suggest that, that something, um, some kind of civilization did exist on Mars. And um, so that's the sort of the thrust of it. And to back it up, you know, look at um, various other data. People talk about the face on Mars. Um, a lot of people don't know there's actually several uh, strange faces on the surface of Mars, um, which suggests um, you know, a sort of a, a civilization, an, an advanced one, a long, long time ago. Uh, but again, if you look at these uh, findings, you know, they're clearly um, damaged to significant degrees, which again allows us to conclude that we're talking about something from, you know, times long gone. Are we talking a civilization that looks like you and I or a civilization that looks a little different? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because if you if you look into the story, you know, I mentioned the the face on Mars. Now, that one is a very controversial one. Um that, uh, you know, a number of pictures have been taken by NASA and depending on, you know, where the shadows are and where the pictures are taken from, you can make a case that it actually looks kind of like a sphinx, an Egyptian sphinx, but looking upward rather than outward with the Egyptian um, sphinx. Um, but a lot of people don't know there's another one, and um, this one um, is arguably even more important. It's, it's known within sort of Mars research as the crowned face. Now, if you Google images, um, Mars crowned face, you'll see what eerily looks like like a carved face. And if you look at it, um, it seems to have a crown 
eyes, even with pupils, a nose, nostrils, lips, and a chin. And when you look at that picture, to me, it does not look like um, just random um, imagery. To me, it really does look like a carved face. And um, there are several other ones that have fallen into that category as well. Uh, but again, you know, we're talking about the ravages of time as well. But if you look at that particular one, the crowned face, um, to me, that is so sort of precise, if you like, that I don't think that was just you know, sort of a, a random thing. I think this was a carved, a huge carved structure. Uh, but what's it, you know, to get back to your question, you know, about, you know, was this civilization like us? Well, if you look at the various um, faces that have been carved, they look just like us, you know, two eyes, nose, mouth, etc., etc. Um, and if you look at nature in general, though, you know, if you've got a, a pet dog, well, the dog's got two eyes, you know, a nose, a mouth, two ears, and um, it's got four limbs, but it walks on two limbs. Oh, it's got on four limbs, whereas we walk on two limbs. But they've basically got the same kind of structure. So it wouldn't really surprise me if um, highly advanced um, extraterrestrials on Mars, I'm not surprised that they would look sort of, um, you know, fairly close to us, um, which, you know, I, I think sort of certain structures, arms, legs, um, mouth, eyes, nose, etc. I, th I think, you know, you could make a case that all of those kind of tie in with advanced, um, civilized um creatures like us, but also, you know, we've highly advanced other animals um, on our Earth as well. You know, dogs, cats, all their chimpanzees, gorillas, all very, very intelligent. And again, as I said, you know, two eyes, nose, mouth, head, arms, legs, that kind of thing. So, so I think, you know, um, maybe nature, not just on our planet, but throughout the universe, possibly presents... Um, advanced beings if you like in you know superficially at least in very similar ways i think nick is there evidence to assume that they survived whatever may have tried to wipe them out at some point in time well i mean that that's a good question because there's some evidence that at some point on the surface of mars there's been some degree of destruction, major destruction on various parts of Mars. And some researchers have suggested, and granted it is a theory, but it's an interesting theory, the idea of there having been something like a nuclear war on Mars in the distant past, um, in the same way that, you know, we might do one day. Um, and in other words, you know, perhaps Mars was very much like our world at one point, but was ultimately ravaged uh, due to some kind of massive catastrophe. Now, it could be a nuclear war. Uh, it could be something like um, a huge asteroid strike, that kind of thing, um, you know, don't, destructed by, by nature, so to speak. And... Um, 
I mean, there's all sorts of different theories, but I think it does come down to the scenario of a massive catastrophe on Mars. And uh, now what it was, that's the big question. Now, if you look at the surface of Mars, you know, it has this incredible number of craters and, um, and where we have the face on Mars and where there are these um, sort of pyramid-type structures as well. There's also evidence in those specific areas where significant damage has taken place. So, again, you know, we're sort of looking at things from a, almost like from an archaeological perspective. We're not really looking at it, you know, from, from the most part from the present day. However, in saying that, there are some genuinely other similar photographs that have been taken by NASA. And this is one of the important things to note. The, all the pictures that I've used in the book, which seem to show these really weird anomalies, you know, they're not just images that, um, that have no kind of, you know, sort of um, originating aspect with them. You know, these are actually coming directly from NASA. Now, one of the pictures um, that's actually been taken by on Mars around about 10, 12 years ago, was this a picture of this strange creature, and I do think it is a creature, um, crawling up the side of a cave. And it's, it's called the face hugger, after the face hugger creature in the Aliens movies uh, with um, Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> now, <laughs> and it's actually quite a, a, quite a relevant title for it to have. But um, again, if you Google, uh, go Google images, NASA, um, face hugger, and you'll see what looks like this strange creature, which is like a spider, something like a cross between a spider and a crab climbing up a wall. And although the skeptics have said, well, this is just rocks or stones, but to me, it doesn't really look like that. It really looks like sort of a four to five foot um, spidery crab-like thing crawling up a wall. And it's, and it's difficult to understand how you could sort of really say to anything else. Now, it could, there could be another answer. However, I, I, you know, I really cannot find one that would be, you know, a really good one. Um, now, bear in mind that particular picture um, was taken by NASA. You know, it wasn't something that somebody just popped on the on the net, you know, and uh, put out there by Mr. X. You know, it's nothing like that at all. Um, so, you know, that's an important aspect of it. Now, in, in the cases where we don't have photographs, um, over the years there's been um, various... Um, research into Mars by doing the research by remote viewing. Now, for people who may not know, uh, remote viewing is basically using the human mind um, to focus on certain people or locations and pick up imagery and uh, a really good uh, remote viewing um, sessions, you know, a person could look back deep into the past and essentially have sort of a vision in their mind of what happened um, sort of 5, 10, 20,000 years ago, maybe even more than that. Now, what's really interesting about the remote viewing aspect of all this 
is that back in 1984, the CIA secretly ran a remote viewing program um, to try and figure out um, what it was that destroyed what the CIA presumably thought was an, uh, a Martian civilization. Now, what's intriguing about this, not so much the remote viewing uh, program of Mars by the CIA itself, but also the fact of why the CIA decided to go looking at Mars in the first place. You know, it's not like the thing that the average CIA agent does, you know, they don't go to work usually and sit down and say, oh, I think I'm going to remote view Mars 10,000 years ago today. <laughs> you know, it's not the sort of thing that goes on, but it did. So this makes me believe that the CIA at some point found out that there was something or had been something deep in the past on the surface of Mars. And one of the other things they were looking into was to try and figure out um, what had happened to Mars and its civilization. And they picked up imagery of what looked eerily like us, very human-like entities on Mars, but much taller. We're talking about sort of 12 to 13 feet tall, which would be sort of pretty intimidating, you know, to see someone looking like us, but, but like 13 feet tall. Now, that's one side of the remote viewing angle. And one of the people I interviewed um, for the book, a friend of mine, <coughs> excuse me, Kimberly Rackley, and Kimberly is a very skilled um, remote viewer, and she's done a lot of investigations in that field. And um, she did a lot of work for the book to, uh, to use her remote viewing abilities. And she came up with some fascinating material as well, which also puts it in the picture of like, Mars having some sort of gigantic planet-wide disaster. And, um, and one of the things that's been um, put into the picture as well is the possibility of the surviving Martians potentially trying and possibly even successing to coming to the Earth itself. And the theory then from there, which gets controversial, is the idea that, you know, were the stories of the gods and the giants coming, round to, coming down to Earth in the distant past, were they actually just really fleeing Martians coming to our world? Um, so there's a lot we know, but there's also a lot that's sort of speculative. Um, but for me, if you put it together, you know, with the statue-type uh, imagery, um, you know, the, the strange crab facehugger-type thing, I think if we look in the right places, we will find something. It may not be little green men or, or whatever, anything like that, but it might be something, even if it's something the size of a, an ant or an insect, you know, that, that in itself, um, you know, would be incredible. Does NASA have evidence such as artifacts and whatnot that they haven't been forthcoming with that would help make this um, make this point further? Well, I mean, that scenario has been put forward on many occasions, but the, admittedly, it's, it's speculative. Um, you know, we don't have any proof that... Um, 
you know, anything like artifacts or ancient structures or ancient you know, mechanical devices or whatever. We don't have anything in the public domain that falls into that category. Um, and so, you know, that part of the story really has come to, you know, sort of a stumbling block because, um, you know, the only way we're able to um, sort of take a look at the pictures is by waiting for the next batch to come through from NASA. So, you know, it's and, it's and it's nobody's fault. It's just, I mean, we're talking about a planet millions of years away. And, um, and um, excuse me, millions of miles away. And, um, and it's one of those situations where, you know, we're just, we're reliant on um, Mars to, to show us the picture. And, I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know, my, um, NASA is hiding all this material. But my view is, well, if they're, if they're hiding it, why are they showing us the face hugger? Why are they showing us the crown face? Why have they now declassified the CIA's uh, documents on the remote viewing? All of this has been put into the public domain. So... Personally, you know, although some researchers paint NASA as the bad guys and saying, you know, the people saying, well, they're hiding all this. Well, they're not hiding it because I've just mentioned, you know, one of the foremost intriguing pictures, you know, the face of I've just talked about it, you know, because NASA have, have um, put it into the public domain for us all to see. So... In that sense, I don't personally think NASA is hiding information and, and, the, and the pictures and the imagery because it is out there. What I do think, however, is that, um, you know, NASA have taken a look at this and at this and at that, et cetera, et cetera, but they've come away thinking, well, you know, they kind of liken it to, you know, if you look up at clouds in the sky, you know, and you see a, a dog's face or a cat's face, you know, um, that's how NASA kind of liken um, these pictures. They don't think, you know, they're not hiding them, but they're openly saying, you know, we're not really convinced they're anything other than a strange piece of rock. Um, but then again, you have people at the far more extreme angle of conspiracy theorizing who are absolutely sure that um, NASA is hiding a massive amount of material. Now, I personally don't think they are, but, you know, if um, one day, you know, a huge stash of material comes out, I'll happy be happy to be wrong, you know. Yes, uh, we are happy and always encouraged to check our opinions at the door and to reassess as new evidence comes to the forefront. My guest is Nick Redfern. Our program tonight, Strange World on Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. Think you've heard it all? Just wait until Into the Paranormal continues. This is Brad Bernards with Pair Abnormal News.
A fireball could be seen soaring across the sky above Vermont on Sunday night, according to scientists with NASA Meteor Watch. Estimates created from more than 100 eyewitness reports show the fireball first appeared at approximately 5.40 p.m., more than 50 miles above the Mount Mansfield State Forest. That's according to NBC5 in Burlington, Vermont. Hundreds of people spotted a fireball or a very bright meteor flying through our sky last night. Experts now saying it was a piece of an asteroid moving at 42 thousand miles an hour and carrying as much energy as 440 pounds of TNT. Several Vermonters called into local newsrooms to report the sight or feeling of the meteor after it roared overhead. Scientists with NASA Meteor Watch say the object was likely a fragment of an asteroid. You can understand how a planet full of stressed out people trying to survive a pandemic might get a little panicky about news of a very large asteroid visiting our cosmic neighborhood. NASA says you don't have to worry about asteroid 2001 FO32, which will pass by at a safe distance on March 21st, according to CNET.com. Asteroids of all sizes fly by Earth all the time, but occasionally NASA makes a public statement to calm fears when space rock-related headlines get out of control. The NASA Asteroid Watch Twitter account delivered a reassuring message on Monday, saying 2001 FO32 will safely zip past Earth at a distance of 1.3 million miles and poses no risk of hitting Earth. There's more news at paraabnormalradio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, Paraabnormal News. Skype callers can get through to Into the Paranormal at ITP51 or just click the button at paranormalradio.com. All right, my guest is Nick Redfern. I'm back. Uh, well, forget about election interference because a lot of people have been talking about uh, election fraud and uh, the previous election, whether or not Russia was involved, and even maybe whether Russia had some meddling in in the most recent election, I guess. Well, is it true, Nick, that Russia has also been meddling in UFOs? Oh yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but um, particularly going back to the early part of the Cold War, there was a lot of um, sort of competition, if you like, almost, um, and each side, the West and the East, trying to find ways to sort of freak out the enemy. And um, and a lot of this did uh, relate to UFOs. For example, in the early 1950s, um, 
one of the most famous but also controversial characters in that era, the early 50s, was George Adamski. Now, George Adamski was someone who claimed encounters um, out in the California desert on a number of occasions with these very human-looking, like, aliens. And he said they were sort of very much like us, the only uh, glaring difference being that they had long blonde hair. And, of course, you know, most of the guys back in the 50s certainly didn't have their, you know, their hair grown down their back. Um, and although they looked just like us, there were some um, sort of kind of subtle differences in, in, the, in their face and so on. But for the most part, um, he and a lot of the other contactees, as they were known, um, others included George Hunt Williamson, Orfeo Angelucci, uh, True and Bethroom. There was dozens of them who claimed to have had these encounters out in the desert um, with these very human-looking aliens. Now, what's intriguing is that most of the... Um, the contactees said that all of those, these long-haired aliens that became known as the Space Brothers, um, according to the contactees, just about each and every one of these space aliens had a communist-type government. And pretty much all of them, uh, for example, George Adamski um, in particular, if you listen to his available lectures and you read his words um, when he was speaking at conferences and lectures, in the early 50s, Adamski said quite openly that um, Russia was going to dominate the world, um, that America would collapse, etc., etc. Now, what Adamski didn't know was that um, the FBI had people, agents, in um, Adamski's uh, audiences when he was speaking, you know, doing his lectures um, up and down California. And we know that now because through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, the FBI has now declassified its file on Adamski, and it tells you about how FBI agents sat in the audience um, made notes about how Adamski was saying that the Russians, you know, were going to dominate the world for thousands of years and the aliens um, had a Russian or a communist-type um, government and it would be wise if we followed their, their way. Now, what's intriguing is that the FBI, they came to the conclusion that some of the um, contactees and possibly even Adamski himself were being secretly or had been secretly hired by the Russians to try and um, infiltrate the UFO research community, which was very large at that time, and, um, and to have people up and down California coming to believe that, well, maybe communism isn't too bad after all. And, of course, the FBI didn't want to hear that, and, and nobody in the U.S. government did either. But that was when this really kicked off, and the FBI, as I said, came to believe or suspect that Adamski was actually working for the Russians um, as a means to spread communism, but doing it under the cover of his UFO lectures. And uh, that happened throughout the 50s with several of the, um, the contactees claiming that their 
friends from Mars or Jupiter or whatever. Oh yeah, they're all they're all uh, communists, by the way. <laughs> that that's basically how the story went. Um, but on top of that, um, there was a lot of similar situations like that. Um, for example, in the early 1950s, we know now that um, that the U U.S. intelligence subtly uh, put stories out to Russia that the U.S. had in its hands um, alien technology far more advanced than Russia. Now, it turned out, um, again, when the uh, files and the data uh, came out through the Freedom of Information Act, we know now that that's actually not true, that what they were trying to do, each side was trying to do like a one-up on the other. And these stories um, that we've got alien technology, you know, we've got alien weaponry, it was basically just to to freak out the Russians. It wasn't true, but it did become, over the years, a part of UFO law and the history of the subject. So, in other words, we know there's a real, genuine UFO phenomenon, but there are also these fabricated stories to try and frighten the Russians and vice versa. So, one of the things I talked about when I wrote a book on this subject called Flying Saucers from the Kremlin. And when I was doing the research for the book on how and why both the East and the West were using the Russian, um, excuse me, were using the UFO issue as a means to, um, to try and make the other one think communism's great, etc., etc. Um, that's really when you had the start of sort of the men in black mystery, when you had government agents realizing that some of the um, some of the early people like Adamski may actually have been a threat to national security, and that's when you had MIB type people coming along watching them, following them, um, intercepting phone calls, bugging calls, that kind of thing. So um, it was in it, this early part of the Cold War, and, it, and how it blends in um, with the UFO subject. Um, that's a very important but lesser known aspect of the UFO subject. We had a question come in. Any uh, Were there any recoveries of UFOs by the Nazis during World War II? Well, I mean, that depends on who you ask, really. Um, I mean, there are stories along those lines. And um, and if you look at the, uh, the FBI's files on UFOs, if the, the FBI have got a, a website called The Vault. If you go to vault.gov, and they've got a section called Unexplained Phenomena, and then if you go inside the unexplained phenomena, you'll see all their UFO files. There's about 2,000 pages, and within um, those 2,000 or so pages, there actually are several um, arti excuse me, uh, documents um, within those files that talk about how the U.S. military um, had spoken to former... Um, Nazi personnel and German pilots and things like that who claimed to have um, seen Nazi technology that looked like flying saucers. Now, you know, that was sort of the, the, the words of someone who 
you just made a claim and the FBI put a document together um, basically because they wanted to keep all the information on record. But that's very different, you know, um, from the whole angle of Nazi sources. Um, you know, personally, I don't have much time for the Nazi source of thing. Um, one of the reasons um, being that, you know, we've never seen um, any hard evidence to it. You know, there's rumors and claims and people have said, well, you know, I saw this in the Second World War. I saw a flying saucer type thing, you know, come out of the woods in Germany. There's, there's a lot of stories like that, but there's nothing to actually, you know, sort of prove that these craft did exist. And there's also another aspect to this as well. You know, there's this faction within ufology, which is quite disturbing, who, you know, sort of um, champion, you know, the Russian, excuse me, German technology. You know, they kind of champion German technology, Nazi technology, and also the Nazis themselves. And for me, you know, nobody should be championing the Nazis. I mean, it's the last thing you should be doing. Um, so unless I see something, you know, that demonstrates for sure um, that there have been or there were Nazi technology that essentially was flying saucers, you know, um, unless we see something solid, um, you know, I, I certainly haven't seen anything. So. Okay. So did the, the Soviet Union basically tell take these tall tales of aliens and, and, and feed them directly to the Pentagon? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, some of them were actually quite advanced. I mean, there was one from the late 1960s where the Russians actually filmed um, something not unlike the infamous alien autopsy film. I guess all of us, you know, we know what that is, and all of us, have, most of us have probably seen, you know, this um, sort of a body on a table and scientists or doctors chopping it up and doing an autopsy. And, um, and we know now that, you know, the alien autopsy was a hoax. Um, and it's intriguing because back in 68, the Russians did something practically identical. They put this uh, footage together with a small craft embedded in the woods and, um, and then also imagery of um, just very, very brief imagery of what seemed to be an autopsy of a very small alien creature. And uh, you can see the footage online and uh, and it's done really well. Uh, but again, you know, this was really sophisticated. This wasn't just, you know, spreading stories, which is easy. You know, this was footage, and they had um, soldiers out there in their uniforms. You know, they must have wondered what they were doing themselves, you know. Um, but even the, you know, the troops were just told to, you know, make it look like this is a, like a real UFO, and... Um, and leave the rest to us. Um, so, yes, you know, things like this, sophisticated mind games is really what it was. You know, this was all about not just worrying the other side, but creating mind games, making the other side think, wow, you know, they've got something we don't have and it's extraterrestrial, what are we going to do? You know, try and keep, you know, the people in the Kremlin awake at night, panicking that, you know, that the US or the UK have got something 
far in advance of them, when in reality it really was sort of psychological warfare, warfare and disinformation and, and finding a means and a way to, well, as I said, how the, um, you know, the, the USSR would respond to some of these stories. And they could learn a lot from doing this. So, you know, you've got two situations. You've got the real UFOs and you've got fabricated stories of UFOs, which is, you know, it's no, it's no wonder. And somewhere in the but, middle um, has to be the truth, Nick. <laughs> well, yes. Well, that's one of the things. You know, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, at all that there's a genuine UFO phenomenon. Um, now, whether it's extraterrestrial, multidimensional, time travellers, I don't know. But I do believe there is a genuine phenomenon. But where it gets complex is that although we have a real UFO phenomenon, it's sort of been hijacked by intelligence agencies to try and use it as a tool of, of psychological warfare. So that's where, you know, it becomes really complicated. You've got real UFOs and a real phenomenon, and you've got fabricated stories of UFO tales. So we have to be very careful, particularly with these old-time espionage Cold War stories as to which part's the truth and which part isn't. And that's probably what they wanted, both sides wanted. They wanted to create confusion um, on either side. One of the uh, things in ufology that people always talk about are the MJ-12 or Majestic 12 documents. Mm -hmm. Was there a connection between those and the KGB? Well, you know, that's an interesting angle. We don't know for sure, but when, when the MJ-12 documents surfaced in the latter part of 1988, um, there was actually this story began to surface and, and circulate in relation to um, Russia. And for people who may not know, MJ-12 or Majestic-12 is supposedly a very deep and heavily buried organization somewhere within the U.S. government, um, basically the people who hide the crashed UFOs and the dead aliens, that kind of thing. And, um, and in 1987, seven pages of documents purportedly to, to come from um, the Majestic 12 group were supposedly leaked into the public domain. And when they surfaced in 1987, there was a huge sort of furor uh, within ufology, you know, the idea of these leaked documents talking all about alien autopsies and dead bodies and crashed UFOs at Roswell and so on. And a lot of people believed the MJ-12 documents were the real thing. In other words, back in 87, there was sort of, the theory is there was a, like a, like a, an Edward Snowden of his day, you know, but we're talking about back in 87. And in the same way that Snowden smuggled information out, um, the theory is, or the scenario, is that Majestic 12 was equally um, sort of, um, you know, purloined from within and then released in, into the public domain. Now, some UFO researchers totally bought into the MJ-12 documents and said, yes, this is the real deal. These documents have been leaked out of the Pentagon and they talk about crashed UFOs. And maybe that was the case. 
On the other hand, um, one of the theories that the Defence Intelligence Agency came up with, and also that the FBI endorsed to a bit or to a degree, um, was the idea that this was some sort of Russian um, operation, again, and primarily to try and create paranoia within the Pentagon. In other words, you know, you'd have one organization within the Pentagon thinking, well, maybe these MJ-12 documents are real. And in another U.S. agency, they're saying, well, surely we, we would know because we're the, the, you know, we're the Pentagon. Yeah, um, we would know. So in other words, yeah, that's right. And so see, that was one of the interesting theories, that the Russians did fabricate the MJ-12 documents, but they did so um, to create paranoia upon paranoia as to, well, like I said, you know, we should know, we're the guys. And if we don't know, well, who does? And so you have people, you know, in government with their heads spinning, which probably was the the goal of the Russians. Um, but again, you know, the reason why we're still talking about this today is simply because we don't know the truth of Majestic 12. I mean, Stan Friedman, one of the most famous and um, ufologists ever, you know, um, to his dying day, Stan believed that the MJ-12 documents were the real deal. He was absolutely certain. Um, others, you know, walked away and said, well, maybe, and others were like, no, this is just this is just put together by somebody in his basement or somebody named Ivan in Moscow, you know. <laughs> um, so, again, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but, again, we, we're left with a situation where it's a, it's a maybe, it's a possibility. Um, that's, I think that's one of the things that frustrates a lot of people in ufology you know one of the things that we don't get much of is a straight story we get a lot of on the fringe kind of thing my guest is nick redfern and we'll continue our program strange world his if you want to read more about russian meddling in soviet spies and cold war secrets uh, check out nick's book flying saucers from the kremlin more with Nick. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest when we come back. News not from the mainstream. Paranormal News with Brad Bernards is coming up only on Into the Paranormal. Alien visitations make for another extraordinary Saturday night. I don't think there's anybody who loves subjects of the paranormal or the strange or the weird who cannot fall in love with Nick Redfern because he writes about so many topics, so many interesting, fascinating, strange, bizarre, weird, paranormal, fringe subjects. I know I have a couple of books uh, of his on my bookshelf. I recommend that you pick up some of his if you're interested in a good read. 
And, of course, um, we've got links to those at parabnormalradio.com. Uh, you can help us out by doing your shopping that way. Uh, just click the link at parabnormalradio.com for Nick's books and pick them up. We're going to talk about the next, after everything we've discussed can get us into some hot water, we're going to talk about the cover-ups and the lies and, and, and even deeper. From the intro to Nick's book, Cover-Ups and Secrets, The Complete Guide to Government Conspiracies, Manipulations, and Deceptions, it says this. And I couldn't say it, say it any better myself, so I'll read this. It says, fake news, alternative facts, outright lies, fears of nuclear war, widespread surveillance of the population, mass shootings, the rise of a totalitarian state, and more have led millions of us to distrust the world of government, and with good reason, too. There are countless conspiracy theories in circulation that suggest the world as we see it is not as it really is. Disinformation campaigns try to tell us that up is down and that right is wrong. The powers that be certainly are restricting access to information. They are monitoring us on top of that. And we are being fed propaganda, Nick, more in this age than any other in our time. Well, yeah, I mean, we're living, you know, in a strange time right now and um to say the least and um you know you have factions on different sides believing this and somebody believes that and inevitably you know it provokes um confrontation um and you know this covers um all sorts of different subjects i mean what we talked about with russia just now you know and ufos in many respects it's not dissimilar to what we see now in the sense that we have different factions and different belief systems um, and which causes fraction, you know, between both sides. And so I think a lot of that, you know, is sort of down to, you know, the the human mind. We kind of, you know, we sort of focus, um, oh, this is right or this is wrong and you're right and somebody else said, no, but you're wrong, that kind of thing. And that's sort of, you know, that's throughout history. Um, and But we're just seeing it on sort of a, a huge scale right now, I guess. And so in your book, uh, you, you talk about, you know, misuse of power and lies and corruptions. And I want to get into some of the specifics because I think this will really sound some alarm bells in people who, uh, you know, if they haven't been paying attention... Now they will. And since we talked about NASA right before the break and about them, you don't think, hiding much from us, you do talk about, in your book, some misdirections. Uh, basically a magic trick. They're trying to show us something here when something else be happening behind the curtain. Well, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say, really. I mean, for example, you know, um, when people talk about the government this and the government that, you know, I think... A good case can be made that a lot of um, sort of, you know, things that that fall into the category of um, conspiracies isn't necessarily directly undertaken by government agencies. I think, you know, a lot of manipulation can be done quite easily by small numbers of, of people um, putting a particular scenario 
out there, you know, seeding it. Um, and I think, you know, it's extremely and disturbingly easy for them to do that. Um, you know, and um, people always sort of point the finger, it's the government, it's the government that, it's the government this. But I think many occasions it isn't. Um, it's shadowy figures in the background, you know, behind the curtains, as you said, um, who are the ones who are really kind of manipulating things. Um, and, you know, I think most people in government are just regular, normal people, you know, trying to do a job. Um, but behind there, you know, you put something out there and it doesn't take long to create a belief system uh, to the extent where literally millions of people will buy into it, whether they should or not. And and that is sort of dis is disturbingly weird as well at the same time because the sheer number of people who can suddenly suddenly pop up from nowhere you know and become major news for for months and you don't know which what to believe who to believe you know and so on Okay, and if you take one A out of that, you have the NSA, which is another one of those three-letter agencies. There was <laughs> talk about that in our chat room over on Facebook Live. Uh, penetrating cell phones, our emails, uh, our Facebook activity, our tweets, and even our messages on Skype, which Nick and I are not on Skype tonight, so they can literally uh, get it all, Nick. Well, you know, I mean... I think there's not, well, not, I not think, I mean, I know, um, you know, since the sort of proliferation of the whole internet era when it began, you know, and has now reached the, to the point where we are, I mean, you know, whether, to what extent, you know, people believe there's mass surveillance or not, you know, depending on which angle you're coming from, the fact is that the technology is there. You know, I mean, our phones, cell phones, iPhones, any kind of smartphone, really, um, is, is essentially, you know, in a place where it can be hacked. You know, um, your laptop can, your desktop, um, you know, your account for this or your account for that. Um, and, and in that sense, you know, you... People have started to, you know, think, I mean, along the lines of, well, am I being listened to? And then sometimes when that happens, people decide to, well, maybe I shouldn't say anything, you know. And then, and so then you have these sort of, you know, these like sociological kind of aspects where, you know, people become paranoid without actually having proof that they're being watched because they... They think or they expect to be, you know, to be followed, that kind of thing, because of the way the world is. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so many kind of offs, offshoots, you know, that relate to, to things like this. Um, you know, I mean, if you look at the way, you know, just after the recent, um, you know, the election, I mean, that caused you know, a situation where you had, you know, in the United States where people were quite literally divided and they were divided because it really was a situation where 
the belief systems were so so different you know there wasn't even almost like a hazy you know halfway um angle if you like it really was no we're right now you're completely wrong and we won the election no etc etc and and i think when it things get to that particular state you know um it demonstrates how easy it is again you know to place factions upon factions and and it provokes chaos absolute chaos eventually uh, it gets to such a level that some people uh well have to die for i guess knowing this information and for uh, spreading it well yeah i mean over the years i mean there have been some mysterious deaths over the years um I mean, uh, one perfect example, a very disturbing one um, that started not long after 9-11. There was a sudden spate of mysterious deaths of people in the field of microbiology. And um, you quite literally had microbiologists dropping like flies all over the place. Um, Supposed car accidents, suicides... Um, other kinds of accidents, um, you know, somebody just drops down dead. And now, of course, this happens now and again, you know, because that's life. Um, but if you, you know, if you look at the sheer number of people between 2001 and roughly round about 2005, 2006, all around the world, people were dying, uh, plane crashes, heart attacks, strokes, um, alleged suicides. And, and this was not just on, you know, in one nation. You know, it was um, scientists across the UK, the US, Russia, India, Middle East. Um, and the one big thread is that many of them worked for government and military intelligence agencies in the realm of microbiology and dealing with things like exotic viruses, that kind of thing. And and we don't really have a solid reason as to why these people were all being wiped out. I mean, if they were all being wiped out, you know, by by one nation, if you like, we could we could prove that. That that would be a different thing. But it's not like that. There, there was no really kind of um, solid thread as to who was doing this. But, you know, you go back and, and see all of that incredible number of deaths. For me, this was not a case of um, just random things happened. Um, but, of course, the big question is, well, what was behind the random situation. Um, but that's a perfect example, you know, of that that issue when you said, you know, people have to die uh, because of this information. Maybe that was a perfect example of it. Yeah. All right, so uh, we know that there are several people and several groups that are involved in this whole scheme of manipulation and deceit and... Uh, we we know their names. We know them as the the Illuminati. We know them as the Bilderbergers, uh, and and the Bohemian Club. Well, yeah, and again, I mean that's a, like another perfect example. I mean, um, 
you know, I've got friends who sort of totally buy into, you know, the whole uh, Illuminati thing. And yet I've got other friends who, you know, write also in the UFO field and, and so on, who think it's just complete garbage, that it's just, you know, pop culture mixed in, you know, with sort of conspiratorial history. And, um, and I sometimes wonder, you know, if that is sort of... Um, spread to to create a divisive situation you know when you have that sort of that you know that angle of of, of nations of cultures becoming divisive you know it, it creates chaos um so you know I, I sometimes i think not always <laughs> but sometimes uh i sometimes wonder with things like you know the illuminati as a perfect example that perhaps some stories are put out there to make people think, you know, they have no future and what's the point because we're all totally under control. And then you've got another aspect of it where people are, you know, deliberately putting out there, this is garbage. And creating that device, you know, that, that sort of division, but also, you know, confusing people it's it's a really intriguing but disturbing situation when you can you know you can play with you know people like a little puppet just by putting something like that out you know like the question you just asked me then about or what you the you know, the statement you made about the illuminati um it's so easy to you know, to put, to create situations. Now, and, of course, the big question is, well, what is the is the situation that you're trying to create? Well, you know, it's to me it seems, you know, there's, to a degree there is, I mean, well, we've we definitely seen a situation in the U.S. where, where, there, where we have this, um, you know, this diversity of different people, uh, but also with you know, kind of, if you like, um, a situation where a lot of people have got views, but um, there's pretty much just two. I don't believe you and you don't believe me. And, um, and, and the people who can control millions of people like that, you know, they're, they're the sorts of people we have to sort of be aware of, I think. What the heck does the government want in monitoring what I read and what you read, Nick? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, you know, over the years, um, again, with sort of the rise of the Internet, now, if you went into a bookstore, well, you just go in a bookstore, you're going to read it. When today, you know, you've got electronic books, um, you know, and um, on top of that... You know, it becomes much easier to see the reading um, activities of just about anyone. You know, you just go onto the website. You know, somebody goes onto a particular website, hacks it, see, you know, what's John Smith? You know, how many people are reading this book or that book? You know, a controversial new book. Okay, 50 people bought the book. Who are these 50? It's very simple, you know, to put a map together of people who are into this book or into this particular subject or that particular subject. And, um, but you're right, you know, when you said, I mean, 
in terms of, you know, should we be um, watched, you know, our readings? I mean, if there's somebody um, who's a suspect in something and somebody within government finds out this person has got, I don't know, let's say hypothetically, 40 books in his library about how to create an atomic bomb or something. Well, yeah, that person should be watched, you know, um, but probably more than that. However, you have the other side of the coin, which is where, you know, if you're just have it, you have a, just a genuine fascination in, let's say, what really happened at Roswell or something like that. Um, for me, you know, I, I think that, I don't see, for me, that should require, you know, agencies to watch you just because you're interested in what's going on at Area 51 or, or Roswell. You know, I think um, there has to be, you know, um, a common sense line, if you like. You know, um, you know, it's like if a little old lady gets on a plane, you know, does she does she really need to be patted down from head to foot, you know. Probably not, because she's just a little old lady going to visit her daughter from wherever. Um, so I think there has to be a common set, you know, common sense kind of angle um, between the two, um, because we could, in one sense, kind of slide down that 1984 kind of scenario. And I sometimes wonder that... It could happen not because of jackbooted, you know, armies or whatever coming in. It could happen, but by by a very slow um, slide through something, and then you look back at it twenty years and you think, "Wow, things have really changed." But you don't notice it in the process because it's it is so subtle, you know. Not only are they restricting access and taking certain things off the internet restricting people from banning certain places on the uh, or from accessing certain places on on the internet they're they're outright just banning books uh books of of all varieties hopefully none of yours nick no i've never had a book banned but i mean i mean from my perspective you know when i write my books you know i don't force i don't hope hopefully at least you know i never you know if i'm writing a book you know, I don't, it doesn't sort of write along the lines of um, this is what we, this is what's happening, you better look out. I always look for the, for the data and the facts. And, and if it's something's just a rumor, then I let people know it's just a rumor, you know. And, and as I said, I'm, I'm one of these people, I genuinely do not think that a lot of stuff that, that's going on right now is dictated by government agencies. I really do think it's done by outsider agencies. I think the average government person, just like us, you know, they go, they, you know, cook at the weekend and watch a game or whatever, you know, and then they go back to work. They're not evil people, you know. I, I, I genuinely believe that. I think the vast majority are doing a good job. But it's the ones who um, have the power and who are able to pull the strings, they are the ones to look out and who, um, but I, you know, but that's how I write my books, you know, to present both sides of the coin. You know, if I knew all the answers, 
there would just be one side of the coin for me to talk about. But, you know, um, when we talked earlier about Mars, and I pointed out that, you know, you can make a case that NASA isn't hiding anything because they're actually... Let us see the photographs, you know, I've got them in my book, you know, so you can't say that they were hiding the evidence because it's out there, you know, so um, so there is two sides to it. We'll continue with Nick Redfern, our program. It's a very, very strange world indeed. I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon, somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Think you've heard it all? Just wait until Into the Paranormal continues. This is Brad Bernards with Parabnormal News. The U.S. Space Agency's Perseverance rover has deployed its SuperCam instrument on Mars for the first time, reports the BBC. This high-intensity light probe can identify rocks at a distance. It's a technique that was also employed by NASA's previous rover, Curiosity. But Perseverance has some enhancements, including a microphone. This is the first sound received from Mars. The Martian Wind. The microphone also allows us to actually hear the laser at work. This isn't just some nice-to-have feature, a gimmick for PR purposes, but provides extra information that is useful to scientists. The sound of the laser hitting rocks reveals knowledge, such as the hardness of the targets being investigated. We keep getting reminders that the Milky Way's planetary diversity dwarfs what we see in our own solar system. Space.com reports the newfound exoplanet TOI-1685b is yet another case in point. Astronomers found it circling a dim red dwarf star about 122 light-years from Earth. Circling is too ordinary a word for TOI-1685b's motion, however. The alien world whips around its parent star once every .67 Earth days. The Discovery Team estimates its surface temperature to be around 1,465 degrees Fahrenheit. There's more news at paraabnormalradio.com. I'm Brad Bernards, Paraabnormal News. button here. Just don't tell you to. You're traveling into the paranormal with Jeremy Scott. Feels like we just began and here we are coming down the home stretch with Nick Redfern. So many great topics we could discuss. We tried to pick the good ones tonight for you. If you have questions or comments, now's the time. 
855-790-8255, toll free in North America. That's 855-790-8255. Outside North America, it's 503-506-0396. And on Skype, ITP51, Nick's website, nickredfern14.blogspot.com. Are you beginning to realize that we are being manipulated? That we are being lied to? And that we are being herded like sheep, you might say? The access to the information is being restricted, it's being censored, and the powers that be are restricting our access to the truth in that sense. People are not allowed to think for themselves. If you do think for your for your uh, yourself, then you are the outlier. You're the strange one. Our program, Strange World, tonight. Well, let it be known that um, there are these dark agendas, and these dark agendas exist. And the war over truth coming out has never been more bloody. There are more nefarious conspiracies and plots and hidden agendas and betrayals than you can shake a stick at. And the time we have left with Nick Redfern tonight, we're going to look at how it uh, can be carried out on those who, uh, as I said, know a little too much and (laughs) refuse to back down. Nick wrote a book, Assassinations, the Plots, Politics, and Powers Behind History-Changing Murders, where he takes a deep dive into some high-stakes killings and conspiracies and crimes. We're talking about murders of politicians and scientists and World leaders and journalists, basically, as we said before, people who know too much. Nick, one of the uh, most notorious uh, cases that comes to mind is, of course, Princess Diana, victim of a car accident or uh, a carefully orchestrated plot. Hmm? Well, again, you know, (laughs) that's the big question. Um, I mean, one of the disturbing but intriguing aspects of Princess Diana's um, death in 1997 in France um, was the is the fact that um, in prior to her death, I mean we're talking years before, um, she was telling her friends that um, she was going to be killed in a car accident and it would look like what well, it would look like an accident, you know, and then that's exactly what happened. Um, that in itself is pretty um, disturbing. And then, of course, you know, you've got the situation where, for example, um, some have said, well, you know, she was she was sort of always suiting around the place, you know, and um, going here, going there. I got the media after her, you know, cameras all over the place. And maybe it was just an accident, you know, they were trying to get away from the media. You have that side, and then you have the other side, the, the fact that um, that uh, Diana was under surveillance by um, MI5 and by GCHQ, uh, which is the UK equivalent of the NSA. Um, she was, we know that she was watched, um, partly because she was getting into politics as well, and, um, and there was a possibility that she was um, going to marry um, Dodi Fayed, and the word was that um, there were powerful figures that didn't want her to do that, which uh, really shouldn't have been any of her business, you know. Um, you know, she could still be in the royal family and, um, you know, without having to be killed for some ridiculous reason. Um, but, but again, you know, some of these 
events that look like that are like assassinations and may well have been you know it's difficult to say for sure you know um which one's the assassination which one was a tragic event i mean you can go back literally thousands of years i mean classic example would be julius caesar you know he had this sort of like a cabal that got together we want him gone we want him gone i want him gone and what happens well caesar ends up gone you know and um and just just a few centuries ago in india you had the thuggy uh, this the cult of the thuggy which is T-H-U-G-E-E. -E. And it's where the word thug actually comes from. And they were very proficient um, assassins um, in India. And so, you know, the, the, the angle or the image of, you know, sort of ruthless assassins, um, you know, killing someone for this reason or that, it actually goes back a long, long time. It's, um, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. And... Um, you know, throughout the centuries. Um, but certainly, uh, assassinations today have been, you know, far more high profile. I mean, you know, you've got things like um, JFK, RFK, um, Martin Luther King, um, you know, attempt on Reagan, that kind of thing. Um, and then you've got the sort of more mysterious ones where there could be more you know, to like, for example, uh, John Lennon's killing, um, and um, the, and cases like Marilyn Monroe. You know, where there seems to be far more behind the scenes, um, but we, you know, we're clearly not seeing the full picture. But again, you know, I think a lot of these assassinations work for the simple reason that, again, I I truly don't believe it's the governments, you know, the agencies themselves that are doing this. I think it is kind of like the shadowy cabals, the big, you know, the power figures, the people who can manipulate this, manipulate that. And, and then suddenly one day, you know, somebody says, this guy needs to go. And, you know, there's no way, you know, that an agency is going to write down in a document, you know, please tell Mr. X to go and, you know, kill Mr. So-and-so, that, that would be ridiculous. That just doesn't happen. You know, nothing, in these situations, nothing gets put down into paper. Um, and it's basically, um, no, there's, there's no sort of thread or a following. Um, and I think that's why cases like, for example, the JFK killing in 1963 in Dallas, um, I think the reason why it was never sold and still hasn't been sold is simply because the the number of people who may have had some sort of involvement even to a small degree was a lot of people and so what this does is that it creates so much confusion and i think that was done deliberately you know if it was just oswald and the normal threads and leads and there was no more connections that he had um it would just be thought of as, as Oswald, whether he got shot or not, you know, but he, as it turned out, he did. Um, however, in saying that, you know, if you're in a situation where you've got multiple threads and people, you know, let's tie Oswald with this person, let's tie him to that one, and then the agencies try and resolve what happened, and they haven't got a clue because, 
you know, there's there's just so many people. It just overwhelms people trying to understand it. That's why, you know, you've got JFK assassination researchers today who started out in their 20s and they're in their 70s now because because it's so deep. And having really deep, confused assassinations is the best way to achieve um, not just the event, the assassination, but it also ensures that the likelihood is that the answers aren't going to be found. Did Diana know too much? Or, I mean, why did she have to go away? Well, you know, I mean, for the, I mean, I don't buy into any of this stuff about lizards and reptiles and all that. I think that's there were allegations of that, that she was a, a lizard person. I, I think, I think, I don't even believe in <laughs> reptilians or anything <laughs> like that. I think, I think it's just stories. But um, what I would say is that um, I think there were reasons why there were some people who wanted her gone. Um, now, who they were, that's, the, you know, the big thing. What I would say, though, is that, you know, the, one of the big rumours was that there were people, you know, people of power um, who wanted her gone because of her connection, uh, relationship or growing re- relationship um, with Dodi Fayed. And, um, I mean, I don't see what the issue would be. You know, maybe that's because I'm a normal person, you know. Uh, my view is that um, if she did decide to to want to meet, uh, to marry him, well, good luck to her. You know, she's still, you know, she's still the mother of the children, you know, Charles and, uh, um, you know, and... Um, and on top of that, you know, we, we're in a situation where, well, let him get married. What's the big deal, you know? Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was something along, more along those lines, but the far more weirder scenarios, you know, that she uncovered something about eight-foot-tall lizards changing into this person or that person, I just can't buy into that kind of stuff. Okay, Marilyn Monroe, another figure that you write about in Assassinations, the plots, politics, and powers behind history changing murders. Did she take her own life, or was there a hit on her? Well, I think with her, it was more along the lines of being pushed into a suicide. You know, I mean, we know that in the, certainly, um, you know, in the last year of her life, in 1962, her you know, intake of, like, alcohol and drugs, pills, you know, grew and grew and grew. And this was at the same time frame when she was having affairs with both JFK and and RFK. And there are a lot of rumours which actually probably were true, and there is evidence to, you know, to push down that alley, uh, is the fact that to sort of impress uh, Marilyn into the bedroom that um, JFK and RFK tried to impress her by give her some secrets, you know, um, you know, because exciting stories from the president, that kind of thing. And certainly some of them relate to um, JFK's plans to invade Cuba, um, you know, situations with the Russians. And, of course, you know, if someone like Marilyn, you know, somebody worldwide worldwide known person, you know, and knows too much 
and not through her fault, you know, but basically down to she having been given this information and then that be that makes her a dangerous person and her life becomes um, a threat. And so if you look deeply into the story, it seems like that when she died in August 62, that she wasn't murdered by, you know, a, quote, a secret agent or anything like that. It was more along the lines when she was in this state of, you know, um, a very emotional state, um, that it, she was kind of um, pushed, if you like, emotionally pushed to take her own life. But it was it was more along the lines of an orchestrated suicide at her own hands, just basically through because of becoming down, depressed, and so on. And she reached that point of what's the point? And that's whoever wanted her gone. You know, she was gone, and and it was sort of as I said, like an orchestrated suicide at her own hand. And bringing it back around to the UFO uh, front, James Forrestal, who was one of the members of the MJ-12 committee, this uh, secret committee that we talked about a couple of segments ago, he also died in a suspicious death just a couple of years after that committee was formed, right after Roswell. Well, yeah, the, the Forrestal story is an interesting one. James Forrestal was the first um, secret, U.S. Secretary of Defense and he died in um, the night of May the 22nd, 1949. And um, in the, the months leading up to his death, um, Forrestal started, his mind started to change. He started to get panic attacks and um, a sense that he was being watched, um, which he probably was in some degree. Uh, paranoia set in and... Um, and he was worried people watching him here, there, everywhere. And um, he got worse and worse. His mind, you know, just started to collapse in, in, in short terms. And um, so he was taken to the Bethesda um, Hospital. And um, he stayed in there for a while and actually started to get a little bit better. Uh, well, actually quite a bit better. And he stayed in there and he had, he made friends with some of the military um, personnel and nurses who were working there and, and keeping an eye on him. And then on the evening or the, the late night on May the 22nd, 1949, um, the man who, uh, the military man who was watching over him left the room waiting for the next person to come through. And during that period, one of several things, either... Um, Forrestal was thrown out of a window um, to, for 10 floors. Um, he was, he, or he, um, you know, he, he either jumped out or he was pushed out or maybe it was a combination of something else. But the fact is that when um, the military were in between the, um, the, the shifts, something happened, and he was found, as I said, you know, 10 floors. I mean, none of us are going to survive a 10-floor fall onto concrete, and, of course, he didn't. Um, but not unlike Marilyn Monroe, 
Forrestal, the, the, the rumours were that he got a lot of information. Um, we know that he had not just one diary or a journal, but he had a lot of them. And, you know, when words like that get out, and there are people, in, you know, who are concerned about, you know, this person's got all this information and his brain is starting to destabilise, what should we do? And so you can... It's interesting, but it's tragic as well, that you can, you can find these parallels in so many mysterious deaths. Um, you know, the idea that um, we want him gone, we want her gone. Let's just make it done in a way that seems normal, but nobody can... Re you know, even if there is, a, you know, a little tangent here or there which sounds a little bit strange... Nobody's really going to believe it anyway, that kind of thing. Um, but Forrestal was, was without doubt, you know, apart from people like, you know, early presidents, um, the fact is that um, from the 40s onwards, um, Forrestal really was one of the key original early um, assassination situations and, and even to this day you know his um his death is still talked about and do we have time to talk about one more of these cases uh, with nick redfern yeah. tonight and that's a, an invest uh, a very interesting one of a, of a journalist who is investigating a very powerful cabal i think you know the case out of danny casolaro oh yeah well, yeah, I mean, he was sort of a more modern-day guy, and he was a journalist, um, Danny Casolaro, and he was sort of in the mode of, like, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, all the president's men. He was sort of an investigative um, journalist, and in um, well, actually around about 1989, 1990, he was looking for a new story, like a really, you know, cool, interesting, weird, mysterious story to look into. And it almost sort of fell into him, and it revolved around what he called the octopus. And the octopus was said to be kind of what I've described sort of throughout the, much of the show, like a sort of a, a shadowy cabal that runs things um, outside of the regular government, which is what I, I genuinely do think goes on a lot, that it's not the government doing this or the government doing that, but it's these subtle manipulators with a lot of power that are doing these things. And that is essentially is what Danny Casolaro thought um, was going on with the octopus. And his research suggested that the octopus um, manipulated sort of uh, wars, um, the... Um, uh, Cuba issues, um, possibly the death of JFK and RFK, um, and you, you name it, even the, the Lockerbie um, 747 explosion over the UK in 1988. Um, so many different angles, and he was going to write this book called The Octopus, and it would 
it wouldn't just be sort of, each chapter wouldn't be sort of like, um, you know, just a, a separate chapter on this and then a chapter on that. He was going to demonstrate how all of these sort of, or many of these cover-ups and conspiracies, um, his plan was that he would find the thread in each one, which would demonstrate by the end of the book that everything would be coming together. And what happened, he was found dead with his, uh, um, his wrists slashed in a bed in 1991. Nick Redfern, we could talk to you for a couple more hours. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, the last time we talked to you was 2018. I can't believe it. So let's make sure it's not wow. another three years before we have you back. Well, that's to make it quicker, Jeremy. <laughs> all right. My pleasure, Nick. Uh, take care. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. And from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I am Jeremy Scott. It has been my privilege and my pleasure being with you. I do not take this time for granted that you grant me every Saturday night. And until next time, good night, everyone. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.